The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Hey, good morning, church. If you are using the Bible in front of you, you can find today's passage in Philippians chapter 1 on page 921. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 18. And once you've found that in your copy of Scripture, if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you, about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, and to all the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The later do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in, pre- or whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This is the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Delta, I'd like to invite up Mr. Will this morning. We are in a new sermon series. How about that? Uh, (laughs) In a new sermon series uh, this morning in the book of Philippians, Will is going to be starting us off. um, Most of you know Will by that response. He's a faithful member of Delta, great husband and father, devoted follower of Christ, and a dear friend. I look up to him in many ways, more ways than one. Um, Thankful for you, brother. Uh, Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for, for Will. I thank you for the... um, I thank you that you saved him. I thank you that the, for the love that he has for you. I thank you for his care in reading your word. I pray for him this morning that you would strengthen him, that you would empower him. You would give him boldness and courage to preach your word. And Lord, we as hearers of your word preached, would you change our hearts to make them more like Christ. And it's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
All righty. Good morning, everyone. Um, I noticed this morning out in the hallway, maybe some of you all have seen it multiple times, uh, Goodwill has these little posters on the wall that talk about their mission, our mission. And as many of you know, you work for organizations. Organizations typically are going to have a mission. A mission is something that guides the organization. Um, a mission can be described as something that helps the organization focus and stay on track and make the right decisions about their future and provides a lens to view success and failure. The organization has that set there so that people know what they want to accomplish. Their employees have an idea of what they want to accomplish. Um, some of you, most of you probably don't know this. Brian found this out recently. When I was in high school, I used to work at McDonald's. And when I was at McDonald's, um, if you would have asked me what a mission statement was or what McDonald's mission was, I would have no clue. But if you said, you know, what is the mission, I would be able to tell you based off of the work that we did. I had an idea. It was simply making burgers, we're making fries, and we're going to make people happy with that. We want to do that well so that people come in through the doors and they enjoy themselves and they come back. So I would have an idea of what the mission of McDonald's was. I maybe couldn't quote it or, you know, have it as fluffy as they probably have it online, but I would have grasped that. Um, but I didn't work at McDonald's long because, well, they had a specific mission which involved making burgers and fries and other things, but I had, I had different goals, I had a different mission. And so when those two didn't really gel up together, well, eventually I left McDonald's because their mission was different than mine. Um, and so if you think about that, if I had worked there and I did really enjoy making burgers and fries for a long time, well, I could have had as much joy as I wanted, right? Because I'd, maybe I'd still be there today because that's what they equipped their people to do. That's what their goal is. That's what, they're, what they wanted. And so I had different thoughts. I had a different mission and therefore we parted ways. So if you think about the Christian, us as Christians, we think about ourselves, you got to ask yourself, what is, what is your mission? Think about what's your mission in life. If people looked at you and they looked at your life, what would they think your mission is? And the real question that we need to make sure we ask ourselves as Christians is what should our mission be? What is our mission? What's, our ex what's the expectation? Well, the Bible makes it very clear what our mission as Christians should be. And that is, we should know God and we should make him known. That should be our mission, hands down. Um, and so, as we consider that, uh, if we think about, like, if our mission in life is simply to be, you know, pursue money, getting as much money as we can, save up for retirement, if that's our main mission in life, if our main mission in life is to get power, if our main mission in life is fame, if our main mission in life is freedom, well, there's a lot of opportunities for us to have a lot of discouragement throughout life. We can watch the stock market. We can see a lot of things that they're going to lead to some disappointment. <clears throat> but as we see, if our mission is to know God and make him known, as we're going to see with Paul, there's great opportunity all the time to have joy and to have encouragement. So as we get into the letter of Philippians, we're going to talk about that. But I do want to go on a slight rabbit trail as you consider um, what that means to make God known. So you know, for some person who never has heard that before, think of like God wants to be made known. He wants us to make him known. And so if we think of it like I'm trying to make myself known throughout the whole world, that's kind of a, pri kind of a prideful thing, right? I mean, who am I? The world doesn't need to know me. I can't really offer anything to the whole world that it's worth them to know me. But what about God? God desiring that he is known all throughout the world. Does God have like a superiority complex or is God prideful? Is that what that is? Well, here's a good way Here's a good way to think of it, at least one that works for me. If I were to all of a sudden I grab my heart and I just like drop down, I fall on the ground, I black out, and you guys are watching me, what do you think is going to happen? One, some of you guys might think, well, that's the quickest sermon ever. All right, record time. <laughs> Maybe. I hope you guys wouldn't do that. But the reality is, is that someone's going to call 
911, right? That's what's going to happen. Most of you all people are nodding right now because you know that's true. Everyone in America knows you should call 911 when there's an emergency. Maybe other countries too, I don't know. Maybe Henry can tell us what they do in Canada. But nonetheless, we would call 911. It's well known, even children know that, because it's important for us to know to call 911. It's the difference between life and death. And so, therefore, it's promoted, not because hospitals have, they just want all the business, it's because it's beneficial for everyone else, everyone in the world or everyone in America, to know what to do in an emergency. Knowing God is just like that. God is not so dependent that he needs, he needs us to know him because he's insecure, because we don't know him. The difference is that for us and for every person here on earth, God has already told us that's what the good news is, is that it's bad news for everyone. We've all sinned. We all deserve hell. We, we, we will be judged, and we would get that, but God loves us so much that he wants us to know him so that we can accept the sacrifice in Jesus Christ, and we can be saved. So God wanting to be made known is for our benefit. It is not for God's. It is for our benefit. Now, obviously, he desires it because he loves us. He wants us. He wants to know us and have a relationship with us, but that him making himself known and us making him known is for our benefit. It's for the world's benefit, and therefore, that's why it's the mission. So we keep that in mind as we go into the letter of Philippians because Paul knows this very, very well, and we're going to see that. Excuse me. Um, so just a side note, too. My, my wife and my kids say that I sometimes say Philippians instead of Philippians, so I will do my best to say Philippians. If I say Philippians, know I'm referring to the Philippians and not some like ancient civilization that no one knows of. So, so I will try my best to, um, to do this right. Um, so as we look at the letter to the Philippians, written by Paul, um, we're going to learn a lot. A, a lot of scholars and commentators will say that the letter to Philippians is the foremost book of the Bible on genuine Christianity and how to have joy. And so to kind of grasp what Paul is saying, we first want to get a grasp of who Paul is and who the Philippians are. Um, so Paul's, Paul's letter to the Philippians, it teaches about genuine Christianity and offers us a lot of encouragement. He's offering encouragement to the Philippians, but he's also offering encouragement to us um, as we read this and we can see how Paul thinks. Uh, we get a lot, a lot of insight into the, to the mind of Paul. So the context for the Philippians is this. If you've read in Acts 16, it mentions that Paul and Silas and some others, they're over in Troas, which I believe is modern-day Turkey. Maybe they put a map up there for you because I asked for one and the maps are nice. But in modern-day Turkey... Um, and so he has a vision while he's in Troas. And while he's there, uh, the vision, basically, it's a man that says, come on over to Macedonia, we, like, we need you, we need you. And so Paul, Paul realizes that this is a, a vision from God. And so Paul um, travels over to Macedonia, it's a district, um, and he goes to Philippi, which is a Roman colony over in Macedonia. Um, so if you think of like a Roman colony, and it has a lot of the properties of other Roman cities. It's not Rome, but nonetheless, if you think of like, I like the movie Gladiator, people are probably wearing togas, there's columns, etc. It's, it's a Roman colony. He goes over to Philippi, and while he's there, Paul essentially starts the church in Philippi. He meets um, a woman and some other women. He meets a woman named Lydia, and she comes to know Christ, I believe her household as well. And so the church is basically born in Philippi by Paul going there. Um, so then as Paul, Paul obviously eventually leaves, he goes on, he continues to spread the gospel in other places, and time has gone on, and here we get to the point to where he's writing this letter. Now what we understand from this letter, if we read the book of Philippians, is that Paul is now in prison. Um, Paul has, he's been sharing the gospel throughout the world, or at least the area that he's in, 
And sure enough, it's resulted in him getting beaten. He's gotten shipwrecked. He's gotten bit by snakes. All sorts of things have happened along the way to Paul um, as he's been sharing the gospel. And so at this point in time, um, with the Philippians, he's in prison. From what we understand, a lot of scholars think that he's in Rome. And um, it's hard times for him as, as how they perceive it, you know. No one wants to be in prison. Um, and also for the Philippians, they also have had some struggles too. But Paul will mention that he's really close to the Philippians because, one, not only did he start the church there, but since he's left, he mentions that they've been more kind to him and done more loving things to him than some of the other churches. They provided financially for him. They sent Epaphroditus to go help him out. And so Paul's in prison, and he wants to encourage the Philippians because they're aware of his situation. Um, and so this is him corresponding with the Philippians. So uh, we get to the beginning of uh, the book in verses 1 and 2. It's just an interesting note to keep in mind. If I write an email or a letter to someone, generally I'll say, you know, dear Jen or whoever I'm writing to. And then I have the body and then at the end I say from Will or whatever. Back then they would usually open with um, who they were. They would say who they're writing to and then they would get to the body. So that's the structure of the way the letter to the Philippians works. So here we come to verse 1 and 2. Excuse me. Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the first word I think is really important for us to, to grasp and is crucial to um, the gospel is that word servants. So if you think of the word servants, what comes to mind? I can tell you when I think of the word servants, um, I've said this to my family many times and others. I think of like Bat. I think of Alfred from Batman, like someone who comes in and you know they deliver stuff whenever you want. Or you know, even our context, we might think of a servant as someone who volunteers their time. Like they're busy, but they're a nice person, and so they take time out to volunteer and to help other people. We might also use like civil servant or public servant, someone who works. Their work is benefiting um, the community, etc. Someone who gives of their time. Now that's a good thing, of course. But um, servants, when Paul says servants. That's not what Paul's referring to. It's not at all what Paul's referring to. That word servants, some commentators will say it's actually an unfortunate translation because the real meaning of that word, it's, the Greek word is doulos, and it means slave. It literally means slave. Someone who is property and they belong to their master. Now the idea of us calling ourselves slave to Jesus Christ, as Paul says, that, that word slave has like a negative connotation, of course, to us. We might think of you know, years ago in the South where people were kidnapped, and they were, because maybe because of race, and they were forced to work for their master, they could be beaten, they can be killed, and it didn't matter, they were property. But you have to keep in mind, one, that the word slave in and of itself does not mean that a person was kidnapped and they're forced to do something because of their race. That's not what that means. Yes, that has been the nature of many people throughout history, but a slave simply means that someone is the property or they're indentured to someone, they owe someone service. That's what that means. So that's a good thing to note. There's another side note about that too because people say a lot of odd things about slavery. Clearly the Bible does not condone the type of slavery that we have seen many times throughout history. So if you even look in Leviticus, it'll tell you that a person who kidnaps someone else, the penalty is death. So obviously you kidnap someone from any country, Africa, whatever, and then you make them a slave. God is not up, up for that. So we just, that's something to keep in mind before anyone says, well, it's about, about slavery, which doesn't make any sense. So keep that in mind. Um, but nonetheless, it's, good, it's important for us to grasp that. It is very important because that's how Paul sees himself. He sees himself as God is the master, I'm the slave. And that's a good way for us as Christians to view ourselves. 
Now, it still might be hard for us to po- possibly process that. It's like, oh, I don't know if I want to call myself a slave or something. You know, that's, it's still kind of odd, but we can get ourselves, we're in good company if we think that way. It's good to know that God loves us. He treats us like children, but when we think of our role and what we owe to God, it is very good to think that way. So a few things to think about for slaves back in that time period, because some historians will say up to 30% of um, the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. So Paul wasn't just reaching for a term. He saw it on a regular basis. Jesus talked about it on a regular basis. So um, there's a few different ways people could become slaves, at least that I read. There's probably a lot. But one of them is that um, they could be kidnapped by pirates and then they're sold. Um, another one is that some of them are prisoners of war, so they get captured, and now they become slaves in the Roman Empire. But then there's another group that... Their situation is they're so, they're so poor, they're so destitute, they don't have a way to take care of themselves. And so the only way that they can take care of themselves and their family is that they would find a master who could take care of them, a master who had the resources and that could provide for them, and therefore they would bring themselves in, they would put themselves indentured to this individual because they realized without a master, I don't have anything. I'm lost. I can't take care of myself. I can't take care of my family. And so they realized that slavery actually brings them freedom. And by finding a good master, they can be taken care of. And so, very much so, Christianity is just like that. In fact, the the Bible makes that clear that it's the good news because there's bad news. The bad news is that everyone on earth, we've all sinned. I think there's great humility in this term because Christians, we can't think that we're better than everyone else. That's just not the case. We've all sinned, and therefore we all deserve death and hell. But God loved us so much that He provided us an opportunity. He provided us a way to be saved. And so us as Christians, we have to realize that there's humility in that. God has brought us out of this great poverty where we could not take care of ourselves, and he's brought us into uh, eternal life, riches, where we can be with him. Um, So that's a good good term, a good thing for us to grasp as Christians, and that's clearly how Paul sees himself. He's in prison, and he's starting off his letter like that to the Philippians for them to grasp. Um, so then, of course, it says, servants to Christ Jesus. That's an important thing, too, because, of course, I can't think of anybody in, in any person in the world that I would want to be a slave to, but we don't have a human master. We have Christ as our master. We have a master who loves us, who treats us as his children, who's going to equip us, who's going to do many, he's done great things for us. Many slave or many masters throughout history had no problem killing their slaves or having their slaves die on their behalf, but we have a master who was willing to die on our behalf. So there's great ways to think of that and grasp where we are as Christians and um, what our role is too. So we're, we're value, God loves us, but at the same time when we think of what we owe God and what the mission is, we should look at ourselves as slaves. Whatever, whatever God says, he's the master, I'm the slave. I do what he says. The slave couldn't go about his day and check with the master, hey, you know, my Saturday's open, so if you need anything, let me know on Saturday. It just didn't work like that. Whatever the master wanted, that's what the slave did. It's the way it worked. So Paul grasped this. So he says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. That word saints is also an important word because a lot of times, at least when I was younger, I'd think of the word saint and you think of like in churches where there's like St. Mary or St. Paul and they got like a halo on their head and you think like those are the really good people and like I'm just a normal Christian. But the reality is that the word saint, it's all Christians. That, that word saint means we are separated, we are set apart, we are special, and God is using us. So that's how God sees us, and we should keep that in mind. When he's writing to them, he's reminding them, you are saints, you are special, and you belong to God. And then he also says grace and peace, um, grace and peace to them. That's a typical blessing that he wishes upon them. So then we'll move on to verses 3 
through 5, where it says, <clears throat> I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for, all, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel and from the first day until now. So here we see Paul, once again, he's in prison, right? And if, if, he, if his mission is, is to have freedom, if his mission is to have power, he's not gonna, he, it's not likely he's going to be as happy and thankful as he is. But he says right here, he thanks God when he thinks of them um, and all of his prayers, because, and he has joy because he thinks of their partnership in the gospel. So once again, his mission is making God known. And when he sees that these people that he put into, he, he served, he helped birth this church, he sees that they are Christians and they're still doing God's will, that brings him joy. He's thankful. He can be in prison in a situation where he's not as comfortable or he doesn't probably have the best food and it's not the most well-lit, etc. But his goal in life is to make God known. His focus is on the mission. So when he sees that, he has something that he can be thankful about and he's thanking God about that regularly. He says that. And he also, the beauty is also the partnership, is that as Christians, we have the encouragement and we can be thankful because it's not just us doing our job all by ourselves. We have God who is working through us, and we have our brothers and sisters, people here, that are also working towards the same goal. And so we have quite a bit to be thankful for. And then we also notice that he says from the first day until now. So, you know, time and truth go together. Paul, obviously, as we have said, he was in Philippi. He birthed the church there. And now here he is years later. He could be around 10 years later or so. We don't know exactly. But it was years later, and as we said, he's been receiving things from them. He's seen that, they are, that, there's, that there's fruit from their walk, and therefore he can say, I can see that from the first day until now. And so he's acknowledging that it's not just a one-time deal. They've been doing this for a while, and he's thankful for that. So then we move on to um, verses, verse 6, where he says, <clears throat> I'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that Paul also is encouraging them, and he's confident that he who began the work in them will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, why is he so confident? Well, the good thing for us as Christians is that the gospel guarantees it. The gospel guarantees that the work that God began in us to start changing our life when he's, from the day of our salvation, he's going, to continue, he's going to continue doing that. And think of it, why wouldn't God continue the work that he started in us. Well, I can recall when I, um, when I worked at McDonald's, it wasn't like they recruited me because one day they saw me on the corner and I had like a little burger stand. I was flipping burgers in the air. Everyone was like lining up and they're like, this guy's amazing. Let's hire this guy and get him in there and we'll do great. It's not the way it worked out. I actually had a friend who I needed a job. They told the boss there, hey, this guy will work. And then I got to put in my resume and I started working at McDonald's. And sure enough, when I showed up, it wasn't like I knew how to make burgers. I don't know if I made a burger a day in my life before I showed up to McDonald's. But sure enough, they gave me everything I needed. I came in, I got the little McDonald's shirt with the M on it, I got the hat with the M. They said, stand right here, the grill was on, here's the burgers. You put the burger on the grill, after a certain amount of time, you flip it, you know, here's the buns and the pat, all, all that stuff, they took care of it. They gave it to me, they gave me what I needed so that I could do what? I could accomplish their mission. They equipped me to accomplish their mission. Why? Because it's in their benefit. Of course they're going to do that. So if we think about that in the world that we live in, if any earthly master is going to give his people, his workers, what they need to accomplish the mission, how much more so would the God of the universe do that for his people? So Paul is confident that I've seen that you are truly Christians because you're being faithful from the first day until now. 
So have confidence that the God of the universe is going to continue and he's going to complete the work that he started in you. It's clear as daylight for him, and so he's encouraging them in that, and we as well should be encouraged. So another good thing for us to note where he says, he says, bring it to the completion at the day of Christ. Um, the day of Christ, it points to a time when our struggles are going to end and victory over sin and death is no longer a promise, but it's a glorious reality. So we have to realize as Christians that it's not going to necessarily happen while we're here on earth. We're not going to be perfect while we're here on earth. There's going to be flaws. We're still fighting with sin, but there is a day when we will die and the mission's complete. And God will have worked and he's going to get us to that point. And so he wants them to be ready um, for that point, which we're going to see um, it's going to, he's going to mention again later on. So God's going to bring us to that day. There'll be a day when all of our struggles end. We're not perfect, but we can have confidence that God is working in us. Now, there's, there's another note, thing to note about Paul here, too, when he's talking about that God is going to bring to completion what he started in us. Let's just take a, if you've read the story of Paul in Acts, um, you'll be aware of how Paul started off. So I'm just going to read some things to consider of who Paul is. Um, when we first encountered Paul in the book of Acts, chapter 7, he's called Saul. But I'm going to keep saying Paul right now because it'll throw me off. But nonetheless, he's referred to as Saul in Acts 7. And it says, he was a young man, and he was standing by while Stephen was being stoned. So Stephen's a Christian. He'd been preaching the gospel. And as a result, they kill Stephen because he's, con he's convicting people, and they don't like what he's saying. So they're stoning Stephen, and here you have Saul, Paul, sitting right there. He's watching. It says they're laying garments at his feet, and he's approving of it. He's perfectly fine. With it. This is great. Um, and then it says in Acts 8, Saul was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and he would put them in prison. In Acts 9, it says Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, and he was requesting permission from officials to throw Christians in prison as he encountered them. And then, as we know, Paul's life changes. Paul encounters Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, and God and Jesus completely changes him. He goes from being a person who hates Christians, clearly, and he's going about and he's dragging them off and putting them in prison, murdering people. At least that's what it seems. So it says he's... he's um, um, said something about murder here. I'm already missing it. Um, but breathing off murderous threats, he goes from possibly murdering Christians to now he's a Christian and he's multiplying Christians. Paul knows firsthand what he was and who he is now. So he has every bit of confidence for many reasons to know that God is going to complete the work that he started in them. Paul's seen change in his life. He's seen it in others' lives. He's encouraged by that, and he's confident about that. He knows what the mission is, and he's focused on that, and we see that repeatedly. So then we move on to verses 7 and 8, where it says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So once again, Paul is just defending how he feels about them. He wants them to know that he's not just saying nice things to make them feel good. He's saying that um, it's right for him to feel this way. He just mentioned there's evidence of them being Christians. That's important in our Christian walk. I'm sure we all know many people who may have been to church, and at some point they've had a profession of faith, but as we said, time and truth, they go together. And over time, we will see if a person is truly a follower of Christ. And so sure enough, Paul's letting him know, I have confidence in this because I've seen you. I've seen the fruit of you all's walk. And therefore, me feeling this way is justified. And he even says, God is my witness in that because he's very confident in what he's saying. Once again, he says they're partakers with him um, of grace. They're partakers. They're partners with him in the gospel. He sees that. There's evidence of that. And therefore, 
as he says, um, he, has, he feels as though he has the love of Jesus Christ towards them. So Paul feels this love. He's thankful because they're about the mission. <clears throat> they're about the mission, and Paul's focused on that. Um, and it's just another thought to even think about um, as Christians. You know, it's one thing to be, if you, ha- if you think of your best friend, whoever that person is who means a lot to you, it's one thing when they're close to you whenever things are going good, but a real friend, a true friend, someone who's there when things aren't going very well. And Paul makes it very clear here. He's thankful because they're there when he's out confirming the gospel, but he's, they're also there when he's defending it, or he, when he's in prison. And so there's a true friend. He sees that, and that's the benefit of fellow Christians. Paul sees that, he recognizes that, and he's thankful. Because once again, he's focused on the gospel. He's focused on the mission. So then we move to verses 9 through 11, where it says, <clears throat> And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So here Paul's desire is that they would have love. He says to bound more and more in love. That word love, most of us, we've been in church for a while, we've probably heard that the Greek word is agape. And it means benevolent and charitable, charitable love that seeks the best for the loved one. Now our culture, I think, is pretty confused about what the word love means, if we think about that. I mean, if you just think about um, some of the most popular love slogans, they'll say, you know, love is all you need, and love wins, and love is love, whatever that means, right? We have, we have these odd sayings about love, or we might use the word love like, you know, I love, I love sports, you know, oh, and I also love my wife. Obviously, hopefully we mean there's a difference between those two. I love my wife more than sports, hopefully, right? And so it's one word, but there can be broad meaning. And so it's, it's interesting that the way that Paul says that, if we're going to bound more and more in love, where it says with knowledge and all discernment, some commentators, some say that translation with could be by. If we want to be able to love more and more, it is going to be by knowledge and uh, discernment. So <clears throat> the Greek word for, for knowledge, or I'm sorry, yeah, for knowledge, it, it means precise and correct knowledge. Essentially, they have to really know what love actually is. So if you think about this, you know, if I think about how I love my wife and I want to give her a great gift because I love her, and I go to the store and I think she doesn't like bugs, so I'm going to get a spider because spiders eat bugs. I just get this massive tarantula and I put it in a whatever you put spiders in and I put in a bow on it and I take it and I give it to my wife. Well, as you are chuckling, my wife is not going to like that. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter that I think, oh, I'm giving her a gift and she's going to like this. No, if I know my wife, which I do, and I know she's smiling about it, she does not want a spider, right? If I'm going to love my wife, I have to know her. I have to know who she is. And the more I, I know my wife, the better I can love her. And so similarly, if we want to love, the Bible says that God is love. And therefore, if we know God, we will be able to love properly. Once again, that word agape means being able to, um, I've already lost it here. Um, okay, the word agape, uh, once again, it's to, we're seeking to do what's best for the loved one. And so for us to know what's best for humankind, well, we have to know the maker who made us. He knows what he made us for. And therefore, knowing God allows us to love appropriately and properly. So Paul says that they'll get there by knowledge. And then he also says discernment. Also, that word discernment, if we want to determine, know what is best for people, um, because a lot of times in our culture, people think what is loving isn't necessarily what is best. And I think we can think of this well with our kids. This word discernment, um, in the Greek, it means perception not only by senses, but by intellect. 
right? So there are times when our kids, when my kids can ask me for something, and they're just begging me, Dad, Dad, please, can I have this? And there's, a, there's this feeling where you might, you might want to give in to it, but it's like maybe they're asking for candy, and it's like 8, 8, 8 p.m. It's like, if I think about it, they use my intellect, it's like, this isn't a good idea. I might feel a certain way, but if I think about it, is that really beneficial? And so Paul wants us to realize, he wants them to abound in love, and that's going to happen by them getting more knowledge and more discernment. And it tells us here, why does he want that? Because he wants them to be able to approve what is excellent so, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Once again, our mission will one day end. We will be assessed, as we know in Scripture that as Christians, um, we will be rewarded based off of our works. And we want to get to that day of Christ where we look and we've approved of the things that are excellent, that are pure. We've learned how to separate what is good, what is useful in our life, what we should pay attention to, and the things that we should not pay attention to. And so Paul says that you will get there by abounding more and more in love so that we can approve what is excellent, so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. We are able to separate what is excellent and good and useful from that, is which, that which isn't. So, of course, what is the result? As we see in verse 11, will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. He wants them to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Once again, as we said, we're equipped. Jesus Christ is the one who brings that out. And what is the result of the fruit of righteousness? For what purpose? To the glory and praise of God. Once again, Paul's focused on the mission. That's what his desire is. And so he's praying for things. He's wanting things that are going to help accomplish the mission. He's happy about things. He's thankful about things when he sees that it's accomplishing the mission. He's encouraged by things that are accomplishing the mission. That's constantly Paul's focus. And once again, he's in prison. He's in prison and he's thinking these things and he's saying these things um, for our benefit. So Paul's mission is focused. He's focused on the mission. And so once again, it's a reminder, we should be too. So then we look at verses 12 through 14, where it says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, if you've read Acts 16 and most of Acts, um, you would know that this is not Paul's first time. This is not his first time being in prison. In fact, when Paul was in Philippi, he actually got thrown in prison there too. Uh, after he, it says that they were going to, the, they would go down to this river where they would, there would be prayer. And it's kind of a funny story in my opinion, but there was a gal who was a slave that would follow them and she would constantly cry out that these are servants of the most high guy, uh, most high God who are leading you to salvation, who are showing you the way to salvation. Side note, when she says servants, once again, that word's doulos. She's saying they're slaves of the Most High God. Uh, but nonetheless, um, <clears throat> there, so Paul, this keeps happening, and it says Paul gets greatly annoyed after a while, which I think that's funny that that's the catalyst. But nonetheless, he turns to this gal, he casts out this spirit, and he, this gal had been able to tell fortunes, and um, as a result, now the owners are like, we're not going to be able to make money anymore, so they get mad. They, tear, he, they take him to the magistrates, they tear off his clothes, he gets flogged, him and I believe Silas, and they get thrown in prison. And as you can imagine, Paul gets beaten. He's like, I just shared the gospel, I'm doing what God wants to do. He gets thrown in prison, and he's mourning, and he's crying. He's like, woe is me, how could this possibly happen? If you guys have read the story, that's actually not what happened. What does it say actually happens? It says they're thrown in prison, and at that night, they're praying, and they're singing hymns. So Paul gets beaten. He's like, just, it's easy for us to think as Christians, like, I'm doing God's will, so things are going to go great. But Paul realizes that there's no guarantee that. Paul, and actually, if you read in, in um, Acts, 
Jesus says, I'm going to show Paul how much he has to suffer on my behalf. It's, it's going to happen. There's going to be suffering. So Paul gets thrown in prison, and he, while he's in prison, he's singing and he's praising God. And if you know the story as well, what happens? There's an earthquake, shakes the foundations of the prison, the people's shackles and stuff come off, and the jailer who's supposed to be guarding them, he's freaking out, which makes sense. And he, all of a sudden, he's running down. He's like, he, oh, actually, he's about to kill himself first. And Paul calls out and says, don't do it. We're all here. Everything's perfectly fine. The jailer realizes, obviously, that this is not normal. And so he runs in and he, to Paul, and he says, what must I do to be saved? Paul leads the jailer to know the Lord. And also it says that he, know, he leads the jailer's household to know the Lord. So once again, Paul, Paul is, he has the idea that I am the slave and, God is, and Jesus is the master. If he tells me to go here and I get shipwrecked, that's, God, that's his business. I just got to do it. I just got to go there. I got to share the gospel. If I go to Philippi because God's called me to go there and I get beaten and thrown in prison, I mean, it sucks, but hey, that's what, God, that's what he's calling me to do. I'm the slave. He's the master. And he knows that his mission is to share the gospel, to make God known. And is he seeing the fruit of that? He gets thrown in prison. What happens? A jailer and his household come to know the Lord. Um, and so, you know, they eventually get out of, out of prison. But the point is, once again, this is not Paul's first rodeo. He's been shipwrecked, he's been in jail, and he's seen the fruit of that. It's interesting also to consider that he's writing to the church in Philippi, which he helped start. And at that very moment, that jailer may have been in that congregation they're reading this letter to, and he may have been benefiting financially from the jailer and his household. And so it makes sense that when Paul is now in prison, and, you know, they're concerned if Paul's concern is his freedom, etc., yeah, this, this is terrible. But Paul's concern is the gospel. So it makes sense that when he says this, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Of course, he's seen this before. He knows that. That's, that's one thing for us as Christians to continually think about. If Paul's focus in life is his freedom, if it's his power, if it's money, this is not a good situation for him. But Paul's focus is knowing God and making God known. And so he can see the fruit of that, and therefore he has something to be joyful about in a situation that isn't ideal. Um, so how has he seen it advance the gospel? He says, it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So once again, here are the hints that this is part of, uh, that he's in Rome. Um, the imperial guard, some would say it's like the praetorian guard. I don't fully understand it all, but they say it's like an elite fighting force. If you think about it, how would Paul be able to be in contact with these elite, these elite fighting forces. God has us all different places throughout the world at different businesses, etc., because he wants the whole world to, get to, to know him. And so Paul is now possibly chained to these guards, is what some historians say. He's in house, under house arrest, and these people are chained to him throughout different shifts. And just think about how Paul is. I mean, we already see he gets beaten and thrown in prison, and what is he doing? He's praising God. He's thankful. He's singing songs. And so these people are chained to him regularly. You would have to think that they're going to notice this guy's different. Like He's not like maybe some of these people who have committed, committed treason or their murders, etc. Here he is under house arrest. He's singing songs. He's writing letters to people. He's encouraged. What is up with this guy? And so naturally, as it says, they know because it's, it's, before, it's for Christ. He, they get an opportunity to hear him talking about the gospel. And once again, we see where God put him is where God wants him. Paul's like, that's what you want me, God. All right, it's your show. Uh, you're, you're the master, I'm the slave. And he grasps that. He's focused on the mission. 
Um, and then once again, as we see through many things in life where people are willing to do something that is difficult, it says that many, most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You know, it's one thing if we can share the gospel when everything is going perfect, but Paul has a threat of obviously he's going to prison. He's gone to prison multiple times because he's sharing the gospel. And so when people see that, they're like, hey, Paul, Paul grasped that this is that important. We should grasp that it's that important too. It inspires other, and so more people are hearing the gospel. It's constantly with Paul. He's focused on the mission. Um, so then we move on to the last few verses. Verses 15 through 19. He says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then, only in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Now notice he's talking about <clears throat> two types of people here. And he's not saying that one is preaching the false gospel, one's preaching the gospel, and hey, I'm cool with it. That's not what he's saying. He says specifically, <clears throat> excuse me, that they're preaching Christ. They're both preaching the gospel. But obviously it is the gospel, and therefore he is rejoicing because the gospel results in lives being saved. There's a way that you can think about this, um, and it clearly says like one group is doing it out of love because they care for Paul, and the other is doing it out of envy and rivalry uh, to afflict him, to put pressure on him, to cause him anguish. Once again, if Paul's thinking about his reputation, if that's his focus in life, this would be disheartening for Paul because they're not thinking about how great Paul is because some people are out there maybe making a name for themselves and maybe they're becoming more popular than Paul. He doesn't care about that. He cares about what is the mission. The mission is that God is known, we make him known. He sees people are talking about the gospel, that's sufficient for him. Now, once again, if we, if we want to look at this in two different ways, um, one way that I think could be good, good to, to just picture this is imagine there's there's these two kids that are trapped in a building, it's burning down. And there's two firemen who are going to go in. One fireman, um, he's a great guy, he's a Christian guy, he loves doing his job because he loves people, he wants to save people, um, and he has the right motivations. He wants to use his talents to glorify God. And he runs in and he pulls this kid out of the fire, saves him and gives him to their parents. Then there's this other guy, he's a drunk, like he doesn't care about God, he just cares about, I just need money, you know, I want to be at a drink, I want to go to the bars, people think firemen are hot, so that's what I want to do and I'm going to go in, and I'm going to save this person. He's good at his job, and he goes, and he saves another kid. He brings them out, and he gives them to their parents. Now, the person with the right motives, how do you think the parents are going to feel about the fact that their child has been saved? They're going to rejoice, right? Absolutely. And the other person who saved the child, how are the parents going to feel about the fact that this person saved their child? They're going to rejoice, right? In that moment, it's not about their motives. It's about the good thing that has been done. Paul's not saying their motives are good. He's clearly saying that it's not good. But the end product is that the gospel has been shared. And it is the gospel that is a good thing. And therefore, by that being shared, he's content. He's happy. Because the end result is that God is being made known and that people are benefiting from the gospel. Paul is constantly focused on the mission. Um, so, like I said, if Paul's focused on himself... Focus on his reputation, it's not a good situation for him. Um, so as we wrap this up, there's a lot of good things for us to think about and look back over with Paul. We ask ourselves once again, like, what is our mission in life? What's our mission? If our mission is, um, and, and we want to make sure that we grasp it, like, the Bible makes it clear 
that there are going to be struggles in our life. That's just a guarantee. We can be thankful here in America as Christians that it's not like it is in some other places, and that's a good thing. But we have to keep in mind, if my mission in life is comfort, my mission in life is money, things can be going great, and I, can, I will do what God wants me to do up until those two clash, right? And then when they clash, we'll find out which one we really focus on. If, if comfort is what I prefer, then I won't do some things that God asks me to do because it makes me uncomfortable. If money is what my main focus is, well then there's going to be some things that I won't do if it causes me to not have money. If, if my freedom is what my focus is, then Paul's going to stop preaching the gospel because you don't want to go to prison. But that's just not the case. Paul's focus is the gospel. And the beautiful thing, of course, about the gospel, as we see, is that it's one thing to be happy. You know, there's no guarantee. God, God, we can have money, and that's a great thing. God gives us that. We can have fame. If God wants to use that to make himself known, then so be it. <clears throat> it's one thing to be happy when we have money and power and fame and whatever else. Sure. But it's another thing. I want to be the kind of person where if I don't have money, wouldn't that be great to be able to still be joyful too? And it's one thing to have joy when you have it, but it's another thing if you can have joy when you don't have it. I want to be able to be joyful when I don't have freedom. That's another thing to be able to praise and thank God when I'm in prison. That's, that's a type of joy that people would love to be able to have. The same thing with power, the same thing with fame. That's a type of joy that is not normal. And the only way that you can get that is by doing what Paul does, focus on the mission. So as Christians, we have to ask ourselves, we have to think, what is our mission in life? And if we want the joy, the encouragement, the thankfulness, the confidence that we see in Paul while he's in prison, and he's been in prison multiple times, there's a very simple solution. Let's focus on the mission. So we'll go ahead and pray and um, go from there. God, we thank you that you have given us your word to help us to understand life. Um, we thank you that you've given us the gospel. Um, you love us um, despite our flaws and our imperfections. You treat us as your children. You've welcomed us into your family. You've taken us from complete poverty to now being um, in your family, Father. Uh, may you help us to have the humility that Paul has. May you help us to have the focus that Paul has, Father, seeking to make knowing you and making you known the number one priority in our life, no matter what um, the conflict may be from that, Father. Teach us, please, to think like that, to have the peace that comes from knowing you. And may you show us the areas in our life, Father God, where we need to make changes to, um, to best represent you well, Father God. Uh, we know that through that, you were, we were made to know you, and therefore, uh, if we want to have the epitome, the most joy possible, the most thankfulness possible, the only solution, Father God, is to focus on what you call us to focus on, Father. So may you give us the grace and show us how to do that. May you continue the work that you've already began in us, Father, and uh, may you help us to love making your name known and help us to um, see the greatness in that. Thank you. Jesus, we pray. Amen.